0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you are receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, once again, welcome everyone to Redemption Hill Church. We're a church plant about five months into it, and it is always a joy to come and to sing together thanks Ryan once again for leading us and now we turn to the preaching of God's Word and we've been moving through the book of Galatians Um, we started Galatians 1 uh, verse 1 and we're gonna go all the way to the end so if you have your Bible you can open it up there and this morning we find ourselves in Galatians 4 Galatians 4 verses 1 to 7 if you don't have your Bible no problem I got the text on the screen behind me and we, we come hearing, and wanting to be changed, and impacted by God's word. So we're not merely passive as we look at the scriptures. We're active. We're asking God to continue to change us, help us to see more of Jesus in the Bible. And so that's what we want to do right now. So we're in Galatians 4, and I'll read from verse 1 to verse 7. Here is God's word. Paul is continuing an argument here, and he says, I mean that an heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, Paul says, but he is under guardians and managers until the, the date set by his father. In the same way, also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1999, the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland in England went to court to delay the inheritance their son would receive at the age of 18. Uh, The Duke and Duchess wanted their son, Percy, to be old enough to understand the value of what he was going to receive, right? Delaying the inheritance until Percy was 25, also in the minds of the Duke and Duchess, kept Percy from much temptation that comes from inheriting money in estates. In a sense, the duke and duchess were were trying to protect their son. So while he was an heir to wealth and estates, Percy had to wait. He had to wait longer. He had to wait until the predetermined time to receive this, this massive inheritance. This idea of an heir waiting to receive an inheritance is another way Paul... In Galatians this morning continues to build his argument about the nature of the gospel and our experience in the gospel. Last week we saw how the law in the Old Testament points to the promise. It points to Jesus. Moreover, we understand the law in the context of the promise given to Abraham and we've seen a lot of law throughout Galatians and we understand that law in the context of this promise given to Abraham so we went to Genesis 15 and spent a ton of time in Genesis 15 last week we also saw that a person who is justified by faith in Christ is a what a recipient of the promise a significant implication being a recipient of the promise is sonship Every person justified by faith alone is a son of the Heavenly Father. That was a lot of last week. This morning, Paul is going to build out what he means that we are sons of the living God, but he is going to do so by showing us what it means to be a son who is also an heir to this promise, to this inheritance. In other words, if you are a son or daughter of God and therefore an heir, We've got to ask the question, what are the implications? What does that mean? We're also going to see a little bit today, what does it mean if you are not a son or daughter of God? Paul's going to build this out. Uh, Paul is laying down another brick in his greater argument in the book of Galatians. A person, here's the greater argument, a person is justified by faith alone through Christ alone and is therefore changed to live for the glory of God alone. In this greater argument, we see a person is free because of God's gracious will. It is your freedom which will be accented this morning. What does it mean? What does it look like for you to be free because of Christ? Galatians 3.29 is an excellent segue into today's passage. We ended last week with this. And if you are Christ, just got done saying, if you're a son Of God, if you're a daughter of God and He is your father, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're part of this great family tree and you're heirs according to the promise. That was where we ended last week. And now Paul continues to explain what he means by we are heirs according to the promise. In verses 1 to 3, Paul makes his point in a way that may seem strange to us but would have made complete sense to a person attending a Galatian church in the first century. Paul says, being an heir to the promise is like being a child who is a slave. Now here's a little historical context so that we can understand verses 1 and 2. In ancient times, a child would be an heir to an inheritance, but was unable to obtain the inheritance until coming of age, basically. And Romans had a particular way of doing this, and the Greeks had a particular way of doing this. But the underlying principle remains. Paul is showing us that you can be an heir to an inheritance but not receive the inheritance until a predetermined time, until that predetermined time arrives. In our our 21st century context, we maybe think about this in terms of a trust. So that's the first idea being played out in verses 1 and 2. There's another thought that Paul is contending here and is that a child in the first century is a slave in this sense. They have no control. No power, no freedom. A a child from a wealthy family in the first century was often given another person, um, say a tutor. So the parents say, here, there's your tutor and you're gonna listen to everything this particular individual says. So the purpose of the tutor was to train this son but that son had no freedom. Hopefully this helps us to make sense of verses 1 and 2. Let me reread it again with some context in view. Now I say that as long as an heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. What Paul is getting is that the law enslaved people. There was no freedom under the law. So let's go back to Abraham for a moment. Once again, his life and faith will help us make sense of what God's word is saying. God gave Abraham a promise and made him an heir to the promise. We saw that Abraham was made righteous before God because of God's sovereign choice in Abraham's faith. However, the complete realization of the promise for Abraham had to wait. Even though Abraham lived a full life, he didn't see the fulfillment of the promise. He knew it by faith, but there was still more for Abraham to experience. So for Jewish Christians in Galatia who had had a good grasp of the Old Testament, who had a better grasp of the Old Testament than Gentiles, They better grasp of the covenant promises given to Abraham. This probably makes some good sense. However, what what about the Gentiles, oftentimes the Greeks, who had little knowledge of the law and the demands? How do we make sense of what Paul is saying? I think Paul addresses them as well in verse 3. You might not have initially seen this, but Paul is using a Greek idea to show another way a person is enslaved. It says, in the same way, so in the same way as what I just said, we also, when we were children, We're in slavery under the elements of the world. If you're reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, it reads elementary principles of the world. The second half of this verse is a little difficult to translate. However, the underlying point Paul is making is clear. Just as the law can keep a person in bondage and from freedom, there are worldly ideas, elements of the world, that can keep a person in bondage as well. All people in the world, whether they have heard of Abraham, the law, or the Bible, come as spiritual slaves All people are striving and searching for something, and the elementary principles of the world enslave people. All people are trying to live up to some standard. I think this is what Paul means because of Galatians 4.9, which we'll talk more next week about. Paul says, do not turn back. To the worthless elementary principles of the world. Those worthless elementary principles of the world for Paul in that context were the Greek gods, Greek traditions, a Greek understanding of what it looks like to be made right before gods or gods. Don't go back to that. Now that you know the truth, do not go back to slavery. Some translations say, do not become enslaved. Live in the freedom which was purchased for you by Jesus. I want you to feel the tension from verse 3 because if you're anything like me, you can be prone to retreat from God and head back to the elementary principles of our 21st century world and therefore become enslaved. We can live as if we're not heirs of God. Anything that is not Jesus has the potential to enslave you. For for a moment, consider what you, um, consider what might enslave you. I mean, we all come here with um, different paths, different patterns of life, different sin struggles, We can think quickly, okay, what enslaves Sean Powers? What enslaves you? Entertainment, video games, is it fear? Your phone, substance abuse, have you bought into the lives of the world around you? Do you think politics is going to save you? Perhaps it's your self-determination. Perhaps you think that's going to save you. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Listen, I think verse 3 gets at a cosmic battle. That has taken place, which has ramifications for your mortal life. Consider Colossians 2 8. We read the same language there. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Apart from faith in Christ, a person is being held captive by Something or someone, a person is held captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Apart from faith in Christ, a person looks to human tradition as a source of understanding life. There are elemental spirits in the world that want to keep you enslaved, so where can a person turn to for hope, life, and freedom? If what I have said is true, where do we turn? Where do we find hope, life, and freedom And Paul turns the corner in his argument in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, and born under the law. But when. But when are significant words that lead to freedom and sonship. But when, right at the beginning of verse 4, signifies a moment in redemptive history when God broke in to reveal his promise to the world and to set spiritual slaves free. But when God revealed the promise at just the right time, from verse 4 we can see a picture of God's utter sovereignty over the world. In the fullness of time, God moved. Here's an idea of how to think about the sovereignty of God in light of this phrase, in the fullness of time. Think about the process of an author writing a novel and then another person picks up the finished book and begins to read. The author who wrote the story knows the beginning, the end. He knows the climax of the story. Who are the heroes? Who are the villains? When a person picks up the story... At the Barnes & Noble or Amazon or wherever, and begins to read, he sees only what the author reveals from one page to the next, while the author already knows the beginning from the end. The author is involved in the details of the story, but in this case also stands outside the story. The author is sovereign over the storyline along with the meaning of the storyline. Likewise, God, he is sovereign over the storyline of redemptive history. God is sovereign also over the meaning of the story. And it's up to you and me to pay attention to the details of what God is doing. So, in the fullness of time, God broke in by sending The Son, in God's perfect timing, the Son was sent into the world. Every Christmas, we celebrate how and why a holy other than God came into this sin-stained creation to redeem this sin-stained creation. Paul elaborates on how the Son was sent by saying he was born of a woman and born under the law. Paul's trying to make a point with both of these qualifications. Because Jesus was born of a woman, he took on all of humanity except sin. Aside from sin, Jesus became just like you and me. He was a baby who became a boy who became a man. Now the question is this, why? Why? Why did this need to be the case? Why did God need to become a human in order to redeem humanity? An old faithful pastor, this is probably one of my favorite quotes, an old faithful pastor from the 4th century um, said this, what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. Athanasius of Alexandria What has not been assumed has not been redeemed. For God to redeem humanity, God sent the Son into the world to take on all the characteristics of humanity. There was no other way, and there was no plan B. Also, to demonstrate his divinity, Christ was born under the law. Christ was born under the law to show that he, and he only, could keep the law perfectly. Because Jesus kept the law perfectly, he was the only acceptable sacrifice for the sin of his people. So, in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, at the right time in God's sovereignty, the Son was sent into the world. In verse 5, Paul tells us more of why the Son of God took on flesh. He shows us why God the Son entered into the world and took on humanity. He's on mission. God the Son is on mission to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. To redeem and to adopt. Redemption and adoption are powerful words that help us understand the love and goodness of God the Father. Because of the significance of these terms, I'm going to kind of look at them one, one at a time. To redeem, again... When you think about first century context with Paul, to redeem means to release release a slave from his or her owner by paying the slave's full price. In a sense, the slaves come to the table with nothing but debt, and someone from the outside comes to the slave owner and says, you know what, I'm going to pay the ransom. And then the slave goes free. Again, you can see why Paul talks about being slaves under the law. And the world in verses 1 to 3. is so that you can understand the depths of redemption for you. You cannot fulfill the law's demand and therefore cannot make yourself right before God. You need to be redeemed from the burden of the law which reveals your sin. Jesus Christ became a man who was on mission to die on a cross so that you could be set free... From that burden, from the burden which comes from the law, set free from the power of sin, completely forgiven of your sins, Christ paid the full price for your freedom by being crucified. Ephesians one seven to ten unites this um, this idea of the sovereign timing of God and the purpose which Christ came into the world. In Him now, Ephesians one. Go back and just look at the string of in Christ, in him, in Christ, and in him. It's, just a, it's beautiful, but verses 7 to 10. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, that is making, us, making known the mystery of the gospel according to his purpose, Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Same language. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. It is only by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. A person is redeemed and forgiven. And God broke in at just the right time. Oh, what grace. What grace. Back to Galatians. In verses 4 and 5, Paul not only shows that the curse we deserve has been removed because of the redemptive work of God through Christ, but God also gives us what we do not deserve, adoption. The Greek word translated as adoption means, more literally, sonship or Adopted as sons. You might recall from last week that I made the case that Paul isn't condescending toward women by calling them sons. Paul is elevating women by saying they are equal with men in the eyes of God. All are one in Christ. Every person who is in Christ is precious, valued, and a treasured child of God. So let's ponder some of the implications for being adopted into God's family and out of spiritual slavery. As a slave to sin, you stood condemned. As an adopted child, you are justified. As a slave, you are helpless to fight against the power of sin. As an adopted child, you have a father who is 100% for you as you fight sin and mature into the likeness of Jesus. As a slave, you own nothing, As an adopted child, you now have an inheritance. You are an heir. As a slave, death was to be feared. As an adopted child, you no no longer need to fear death. Because after this mortal life, your true home awaits. A heavenly home. This is how stark sonship is from. Spiritual slavery. Whether you realized it or not, your prison was Alcatraz. Alcatraz. It was a prison located off the coast of California. The worst of the worst were locked up as criminals and held at Alcatraz. You were locked up with no hope, no freedom, and you were a slave to the prison ward. In contrast, your sonship has no prison bars. Your future is full of hope. Your freedom is secured because of Christ. As an adopted son or daughter, you are an heir with an inheritance. I appreciate Timothy Keller's words on sonship. So for a child of God, there is confidence and boldness every day. Every morning you get up, boldness, confidence. We don't walk in fear of anyone or anything. Our Father owns the place. God will honor us, get this, as he honors his one and only Son. We live with heads held high. Our Sonship removes the fear of missing fulfillment or losing approval that is at the root of much of our disobedience. What a wonderful way of summing up Sonship. Because of God, we we live with our heads held high. We live full of faith, which pushes out the fear that can cripple us. Now, if I were to stop right now, I think anyone sitting in this room who is a disciple of Jesus Christ can walk away from this part of Galatians and full of hope of what God has done to redeem and adopt. Uh, It'd be a good day. You're no longer a slave, but a son. But if I stopped right now, you you can live and and rejoice in all that God has done through Christ. But there is more, and that's the amazing part of this text. There's more. It's amazing that there's more for those who are adopted. God sent the Son to secure your right standing through Christ, God also sent the Spirit so that you can experience the fullness of God. Here's verse 6, and it is the second time in our passage where we read about who God the Father sends for his adopted children. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's quite one thing to comprehend truth, but it is quite another thing to experience the truth. I mean, consider your favorite um, dinner. What is your favorite food that you just... If you're going to a restaurant, that's just the deal. For me, it's like scallops, shrimp, and steak, which is a lot of food. But it's like, I look forward to that. Makes your mouth salivate. Now, you all know it is one thing, thing to think about the dinner, but it's much different to experience that dinner, to taste dinner, to, for your taste buds to be engaged by the food you love most. It's a huge difference. Here's one more example of the difference between comprehending the truth and experiencing the truth. Um, There would have been a difference between watching the Chicago Cubs win the 2016 World Series from actually being a part of Game 7 that propelled the Cubs to become the World Series champions. Like When I watched the Cubs win the World Series from my couch in Burnsville, Minnesota, My experience was vastly limited. However, if I were in the game, I would have experienced all the moments that game had to offer, all the the joy, all the feelings, the jubilation. Now, don't get me wrong. I experienced joy when my beloved Cubbies won the World Series. I did. I even woke up my oldest child like at 1130 and like, you got to watch this. And she didn't care. But there was joy. But that joy would not compare to being a part of the team when that final out was made. Our faith in Jesus Christ is not limited to sitting in the family room watching the baseball game. Our faith means being in the game. It includes the Holy Spirit so that we can experience all that God has to offer for us. The empowering presence of the Holy Spirit is a privilege of sonship. Once again, Romans 8 provides a corresponding text. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's not what God gave you. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. Abba, Father. There is an experience adopted children of God have, in this particular case, which is expressed by crying out to God. Adopted sons and daughters cry, Abba, Father. What does Paul mean here? When Paul says we cry out, Paul is saying our emotions... Accompany our cry. With the Holy Spirit, we bring all that we are to God and cry out to our Father. Again, our faith is not passive, but it is active. Our relationship with God is not uninvolved, but it is vigorous and it's dynamic. And these words, Abba, Father, tells us that our relationship with God is also intimate. God the Father hears our cry. He hears our prayers. God's children, you don't, you don't need to come to God with prepared words and prayers. You can do that for sure, but, but we come to God as children. We come to God as your, children come, your earthly children come to an earthly father or mother. They speak or cry out just what is on their mind. Do, do you see the intimacy we have with our Heavenly Father? If you don't see the intimacy, in, in intimacy, excuse me. consider this. The word Abba is like saying daddy. Or dear dad. It is a term of respect, but also endearment. And no joke, when I was writing this portion of my sermon in my home office my youngest, busts through the door and says, Daddy. And in that moment, just realize the intimacy that exists between me and my daughter. As an earthly father, my heart is just filled with so much joy when my kids call me Daddy. Yeah, I have a name that my parents gave me that's on the birth certificate. Uh, We all use that. But there's nothing like being called daddy. Abba signifies a depth of the relationship between the father and his child. Crying out and saying Abba shows the dependence a child has on his or her father. A child who calls out and says Abba submits to the gracious will of the father. I I want you to see the only other place in the Bible where Abba is used. We see it here in Galatians 4. I showed you in Romans 8. We also read about it in the Gospel of Mark. And the setting here is the garden of, garden of Gethsemane. The garden is where Jesus prayed before he took the hard road which led to his death on a cross. Let me read a few preceding verses and then we'll see it in the text here. And they, Jesus and a few of his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus cried out to his heavenly Father and cried out knowing that the sovereign will of the Father was going to be fulfilled through his death. Jesus submitted to the will of his Father. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, we now have the spirit of Jesus and we likewise are able to call out to God as our Abba, Father. It's truly remarkable when you step back for a moment and you consider all that God gives his adopted children, the relationship he provides, the love he provides. It's remarkable. I want you to see one more point from Galatians 4, verse 6. Did you catch the Trinity at work in the life of God's uh, adopted children? We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to cry out to the Father because of the sacrificial atoning death of the Son. May this shape your prayers, how you understand the work of God being done in your life. Allow your theology, in this case the Trinity, to be at work in your life. We now come to the last verse for today, which highlights another privilege of being an adopted son or daughter. In verse 7, Paul goes back to saying that a son of God is also an heir, so you're no longer a slave because of all that Christ has done for you, dying on a cross, giving you faith. You're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. God's children are heirs according to the promise of God and are no longer slaves but sons of God because of the Son of God. In one respect, every son is a recipient of the most precious inheritance that this world could ever provide Christ. However, again, what is amazing about the goodness and generosity of God is that there's more. There will be a day when the darkness of this world will finally be done away with. There will be a day when broken pieces will be put back together, creation will be renewed, tears will vanish, pain will cease, suffering will cease, and God's kingdom will be completely realized. On that day, we will receive the fullness of what God has for every person who is a child of God. So all Christians have obtained an inheritance, Christ Christ is the fulfilled promise and he is also the inheritance. But in Christ, God says, I got more for you. I got more to offer. More to show you. More to give. There's more. And when that day comes, we will worship the sovereign God for redeeming and adopting us for our good and for his glory.